Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. This is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, January 24th, 2019. How time continues to fly. Tonight, I'm going to take you through the highlights of the FDCPA, Federal Debt Collection Practices Act, and how that plays into claims for damages or recoupment and a recovery of attorney's fees for homeowners. And we're also going to talk about what that might mean to the law firms and lawyers in those law firms who try to collect, enforce, or foreclose on loans and how they might be, those lawyers, those law firms, might be liable if they're using fabricated documents, fictitious entities, and unsubstantiated claims to take your money, force you to... uh, hire an attorney, or take your home. You know, um, another lawyer I was talking to used the example in personal injury where if uh, the grocery store has a massive hole in their parking lot that's unmarked and easy to fall into, if somebody falls into it, that person can, can sue. But if a prospective client walks into a personal injury lawyer's office and points to the hole and uh, and talks about the guy who fell into it and all that and then says, I want you to bring suit. And the lawyer would normally ask, where's the client? And the prospective client says, I'm the client. And the lawyer says, you didn't fall into the hole. And the answer is, well, the guy who fell into the hole doesn't want to sue, so I'm suing. That's what's happening in many, actually most cases, of the collection of debt in America today. And that's what the FDCPA, the Truth in Lending Act, state statutes on fair lending and uh, fair trade uh, are all about, to prevent the banks from doing exactly that, pretending 
with doctored up pictures that they fell into the hole when they never did. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners just like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 954-451-1230 or 202-838-6345 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you and all the other shows that you can look up on Blog Talk Radio as the Neil Garfield Show, if our work on the blog and our radio shows, which is all done without payment or other support, if that has value to you, then chip in. I don't accept advertisers. And the reason I don't accept advertisers is that I can't control who they are, and I'll end up having banks uh, advertising, if it's left to to Google, uh, banks advertising how you should go further into debt on probably an illegal loan. Please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. I was just told this morning that the link might not be functioning properly for donation, so if you can't get through online, please call the number 954-451-1230. I've been saying the same thing since I was first asked the question when I spoke at a lawyer's symposium in Phoenix in 2009. That's almost 10 years ago. I was a presenter at that symposium to explain securitization. Bank lawyers didn't like what I had to say. The question was uh, ethical considerations for lawyers who were representing the banks and servicers. They didn't like what I had to say at all. In fact, my attendance at bar seminars after that cleared out about a 10-foot radius around me if the seminar was targeting lawyers for banks and services. They couldn't keep me out because it was for any licensed attorney. But as soon as I sat down, if anybody was near me, they'd jump up and move away because they didn't want to be associated with me, and the reason they didn't want to be associated with me is that associating with me might get them fired. Lawyers who are paid to fake the claims are being set up for being thrown under the bus. They don't want to accept that, but now they're starting to see it. They, too, are liable for making false claims if, they knew, must have known, or should have known that the claims were based upon false pretenses. And the strategy was to avoid a situation where they actually were required to prove real facts behind each claim. We all know in every case, except 
the rare cases of a, of a community bank that you never get the straight scoop on who the owner of the debt is. And you don't get it because the probable legal owner of the debt can't step forward without subjecting themselves to enormous civil liability and probably criminal liability as well. I think the recent spate of cases that are rising up in the court system against law firms who collect debts is indicative of the tremendous liability assumed by a lawyer who, knowing that there are defects in the claim, pursues it anyway. In foreclosure litigation, countless law firms entered into, starting back in the early 2000s, they entered into agreements with several different parties to achieve a single result, a foreclosure sale. They knew, or must have known, or must know now, that the documents they referenced or attached to their pleadings in court or to notices that were recorded in non-judicial states were either fabricated by them or at their instruction or fabricated by others at the instruction of whoever they were taking their instructions from. They knew or must have known that their so-called client was not the plaintiff or claimant or beneficiary uh, under a deed of trust. But they either fraudulently or negligently continued acting as if the name plaintiff both existed and had a valid claim. In many cases, actually most cases, both assertions were untrue. In most of the rest of the claims, the named plaintiff existed but did not possess a valid claim. That actually is proven by who actually cashes the check at the end. If the proceeds are not going to the named claimant, then the foreclosure was a hoax. Now, the lawyers who keep inventing strategies to deflect from this will say, well, there was an assignment of the proceeds. And you still have the same question that goes all the way down to the origination of the loan. Did the assignee of the proceeds pay for it? And the answer is no. So in actuality, the named claimant did not get the proceeds, and anyone receiving an assignment of those proceeds without consideration got nothing. In fact, anyone who actually got their hands on the money was doing so on behalf of the investment bank that started the whole scheme to begin with. The reason the lawyers must have known 
is that every lawyer is required by his or her state and federal bar ethical and disciplinary rules and standards to engage in enough due diligence to know with certainty that their claim that the party that they're going to name as the claimant that that party exists they have to know that with certainty it's not enough to have an arguable basis that to, that their so-called client exists they have to know it exists before securitization we never had that issue as far as i know in any litigation anywhere and the lawyer had to know that filing a lawsuit or other claim or sending out notices on behalf of such clients without having been retained by them is illegal and invalid. So if they did their due diligence, they would want to know that they were retained by a specific client and have that relationship crystal clear and have the existence of the client known. In the case of so-called remit trusts, that's not possible. You can ascertain that U.S. Bank exists, but you can't ascertain that the trust exists and U.S. Bank is appearing not on its own behalf, but in its capacity solely as trustee of, and then there's a bunch of gibberish words afterwards, which doesn't actually say there is a trust. They never say a trust organized and existing under the laws of some jurisdiction or pursuant to a trust document that is specifically referenced. They just have it in the word trust in the name somewhere, and sometimes they don't even have that, but it's treated as though there's an implied trust. I don't know what an implied trust is. I know what a constructive trust is, but this is neither one. So naming U.S. Bank as trustee when there is no trust is a breach of those standards, no matter how you cut it. Since the lawyer is drafting the pleading or the notice or whatever, if he names U.S. Bank or John Smith as trustee when there is no trust involved, it is a breach of the standards requiring the lawyer to conduct due diligence on the facts. In addition, to violating the specific terms of the FDCPA and various other statutes and laws, federal and state. Naming or implying the existence of a trust when it is in fact non-existent is also a breach. Such actions, among others, are violations of the FDCPA. And the bankers suckered the lawyers into what appeared to them to be lucrative retainers on the front end to handle mass debt collection and foreclosure without 
and, and diverting their attention from the fact that on the back end, huge liability that will ordinarily apply to the banks and services might fall on the lawyers or the lawyers' insurance carriers only. The insurance carriers um, uh, only come into play uh, if it is alleged and proven that the lawyer acted negligently and if that's covered under the policy as opposed to attorney malpractice, which refers to damages of a client as opposed to an opposing party, then uh, insurance coverage might apply. These lawyers and law firms were intentionally set up by the banks to be thrown under the bus, followed by a disclaimer by the banks that they were unaware of this terrible conduct when, in fact, the law firms were acting as instructed by the banks. Now, some of you may remember the case of David Stern, who was actually creating, fabricating, forging, etc., and there were many, many other firms across the country who were doing that, and he was allowed to sell his back office system for around $60 million. He's retired somewhere in the Caribbean. And the banks and services disclaimed any responsibility for his action because they they say they didn't ask him to do it and they basically challenged anybody to prove that they did ask them to do it. But in fact, we know that somewhere there are private communications and agreements that call for the lawyer to fabricate, to lie, to misrepresent to the court, um, and, and put on witnesses who they know don't know anything beyond the script that they had been given before they were to testify at deposition or in trial. Um, Besides the, if insurance applies, besides the obvious reservoir of funds for payment of a settlement or judgment, the presence of insurance assures that a lawyer who is far more objective than the law firm as policyholder will be the one litigating and negotiating the claim. That might make both the litigation and a negotiated settlement easier. Now, if you look at the FDCPA statute, 15 U.S.C. 1692, section 1692, um, the uh, 802 under there has Those findings are administrative findings that the courts have to give deference to, and it could have a tremendous impact on whether or not the um, the lawyers for the banks are entitled to make use of legal presumptions based upon apparent facial validity of documents. Now, I'll tell you that if you really look closely at those documents that they're claiming are worthy of having legal presumptions drawn from them, 
those documents are not facially valid. They always refer to something outside the document itself, which is called extrinsic evidence or parole evidence, which means the document on its own, self-standing, is not facially valid, not unless you see these other documents. So no presumption could apply if they're not facially valid. The congressional findings and declarations of purpose and I have all this on the uh, blog announcing tonight's show. The, uh, I just want to go over a few of the things that Congress found after hearings, uh, which caused them to enact the FDCPA. There are similar findings with respect to the Truth in Lending Act and uh, uh, many other statutes. And this is a direct quote from the statute. There is abundant evidence of the use of abusive, deceptive, and unfair debt collection practices by many debt collectors. The, the second thing they found is that existing laws and procedures for redressing those injuries were inadequate to protect consumers. The reason they were inadequate is that they provided remedies, but it really put the consumer or the homeowner or the borrower through the ringer in getting to the remedy. So that's why they passed this statute and others like it. Um, the purpose of this subchapter is to eliminate abusive debt collection practices by debt collectors to ensure that those debt collectors who refrain from using abusive debt collection are not competitively disadvantaged, and to promote state action to protect consumers against debt collection abuses. Now, the big thing that came up in litigation is who's a debt collector? Obviously, if it is the creditor, the owner of the debt, they're not a debt collector because they're just collecting on their own behalf. All debt collectors are acting in a representative capacity. That definition has expanded. There are many case decisions, uh, some of which go the other way. But the general trend is to include anybody who is actually seeking to collect a debt and uh, who, who is essentially acting in a representative capacity. Uh, even that requires further definition, but I can't go into it on this show. So... In the McCarthy and Halthus case, and uh, uh, in a case just filed in South, in South Florida, the question is, and I think we all know the answer, are the lawyers debt collectors in this context? And I think unquestionably so. And their behavior in either creating or utilizing fabricated documents makes them part 
of the abusive process initiated by the banks and services. So, uh, uh, subsection 807 says you can't use any false or misleading representations. Well, if the banks and services were actually to comply with that, they would never have started collection process to begin with, much less foreclosure, because they can't get there without making false or mis misleading representations in all cases other than, you know, the community bank on the corner uh, who still owns the loan. Um, any representation, uh, any false representation of the character, amount, or legal status of the debt uh, which is exactly, you know, that's the first item that is enumerated in the statute. That's exactly what almost all uh, residential foreclosures are based on, a misrepresentation of the character, amount, or legal status of the debt. Can't be any more clear than that. So what happens if, they violate the statute, committing unfair practices, etc. Um, by the way, the way you initiate uh, action under the uh, FDCPA uh, is—I uh, mean, you don't have to do it this way, but it's a good idea to send a debt validation letter, which is outlined in the statute, uh, uh, or get help in writing that and making the potential problems clear in advance. And then you can uh, collect damages if you prove that there was a violation. So the first item under the amount of damages you can collect is any actual damage sustained by you as a result of their failure to comply with any provision of that chapter. So actual damages that you can prove, and there is a divergence of opinion as to whether emotional damages would be considered actual damages under the statute. Uh, in the uh, in the case of any action by an individual, such additional damages, in addition to the actual damages, as the court may allow, but not exceeding $1,000 per occurrence. Now it doesn't say per occurrence, but that's what it what it means, and what I think most of the uh, court cases have said. So. Uh, uh, and in the case of any successful action to enforce the li liability, the cost of the action together with a reasonable attorney's fee as determined by the court is to be awarded to the borrower or victim or homeowner, uh, however you want to refer to them. So, 
Now, there's, there's also a provision in there that says, on a finding by the court that an action under this section was brought in bad faith and for the purpose of harassment, the court may award to the defendant attorney's fees that are reasonable in relation to the work expended in costs. Now, what that means is they don't get automatically get fees if they win. There has to be an additional finding that there was no basis for you to allege that the that, that there was a violation of, of the statute and that you had damages, um, although you could still get at least a thousand dollars in damages in addition to whatever you were able to prove. So the threat of attorney's fees being levied against you seems to be remote at best. So that's basically my CPA. I think that it's a tool that should be used. And remember that it can always be used, notwithstanding the statute of limitations, it can always be used as an affirmative defense in recoupment uh, without being barred by the statute of limitations, as far as I've been able to determine. Thanks, good night, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.